I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 27. Today in the show, we've got our first repeat guest, the much-requested DIY big buck killer, Dan Infault. And our topic is how to hunt the dreaded October lull. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Now, as you've heard me say probably 26 times already this year, I'm really excited to be here. But I might be even more so today because we've got our first repeat guest in Wired to Hunt podcast history. Big big time. This is big time. It really is. And, you know, the question is why are we having this guest on for a second time? And it's because all the listeners out there, you guys have been asking for it. I've gotten so many emails, messages, um, tweets, all asking to hear from this guy again, as his first episode on the show was just loaded with DIY whitetail advice. And as you know from the intro, this guest is Dan Infault, the founder of thehuntingbeast.com, co-host of Hunting Marsh Bucks and Hill Country Bucks, and a renowned big buck serial killer. Now, with all that said, though, before we have Dan join us on the call today, we are going to talk a little bit, just you and me, Dan, about how our hunting season has been going so far. So, Dan, what's happening? Well, uh, let's see here. My, let's say my very first weekend was pretty much a bomb. You know, I already told you about all the, the bad stuff that happened with uh, the doe that I couldn't find and whatnot. But so I was trying to brush all that off my shoulder. And so this past Friday, I, I uh, got into my truck. I was leaving work, still really not knowing where I was going to hunt. And finally, I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to go to a spot that I've never, I've never hunted before. Uh, can, I've I, hunted- can I, can I interrupt real quick? Yeah. I want to make sure that you give credit where credit's due. You did call someone for some advice just a little <laughs> bit. Oh yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. That was well worth the interruption too. <laughs> I called Mark Kenyon up and I asked, what question did I ask? I asked you, how far do you think my scent will travel and then dissipate? And I think we came to the conclusion of somewhere around 150 yards it becomes so, I don't know, fizzled out that it doesn't spook the deer anymore. 
Yeah, and, and I mean, I think, like I said to you on Friday, I think that's obviously a, it's not a rule, and that's the yeah. best guess, and it probably depends on how well you're handling your scent control and everything, but at least my thought process was always in front of what I've heard from other guys that are a lot smarter than me is that somewhere around that 150, 200 range, give or take, if you're playing your cards right and, and taking your scent control seriously, you can probably start getting away with something at that point. But I don't know. That's just my uh, my two cents on it. But sorry to interrupt. Continue. No, no, no. That was that was worth it. That was worth it. I had to call the master, Mark Kenyon, and uh, and I, you know, we talked a little bit about. Um, the wind and where I was going to be hunting and I was going to be hunting. If you take a circle and you cut it in half, I would have been hunting at the top of the circle and the deer were going to be coming out at the bottom of the circle and then taking, let's say if, if they entered at the six, they were going to go counterclockwise back up to the 12 traveling through my location. Well, that was what I thought was going to happen. Um, and that's what I had planned for. So Friday night I get out into the tree and, uh, I saw a badger. Wow, that's that's it. And it, well, the cool thing is, I've never seen a badger before. That's cool. I yeah. I don't think I've ever seen one in the woods either. So there's a first. Um, the rest of the night was a bust. I didn't see any deer. Uh, so the next morning, because I always like to hunt an evening and a morning, the wind it was pretty much the same, maybe just a little bit different. And right at first, I got in there plenty early. Um, and the moon was pretty bright and I watched the doe in the moonlight, you know, way before sunrise walk by. Can I ask you a question? And, yeah. I keep on interrupting you, but I, I'm curious when you hunt these mornings, how early are you getting into your stand? How soon before or how much further before daylight do you get into your stand? I guess it just depends on my access route. Um, if I'm going through the timber and I'm going to be making some noise, I get in there a lot enough time for it to kind of, uh, closed down, you know, or for, for everything to get settled and then they would start coming through. Um, and then I have other places where they're right off a road or, or real off a field edge or, you know, you dump down into a drainage and, and I'll get there, um, maybe right as the sun's getting up, you know, enough time for me to get set up and sit down for about 10, 15 minutes. This place that I was going to, I got there probably about 45 minutes early uh, just because I was going to be traveling the same path that the deer were going to be traveling potentially to get back in or coming to or from this area. So mm-hmm. our, our scent was going to overlap a little bit, and I wanted to give that time to dissipate um, for when they started moving through the area. Okay. okay. Well, sure enough, I, uh, I'm in my stand, sun's starting to come up. I can barely start seeing things. You know, it's almost like it gets darker right as the sun's coming up. And I notice something in the distance in the bean field and it's a really big buck and I didn't know who it was. And, um, I tried grunting at him once and he wasn't having anything to do with that. So, uh, he ended up walking away. In the meantime, two does worked their way into the area and, um, I really wanted to shoot the doe, but in the back of my head, I kept thinking, you know, this buck might come back. So these does are, I'm just watching these does mill around. Then all of a sudden I hear, I hear some like beans snapping and I look and there's a smaller buck and then a bigger buck running right down a, a bean rail right to me. Ugh. And at a, a, a they were heading towards a farmhouse. So my guess is the farmer got up 
started his tractor or truck and they started working their way back towards me. Hmm. So I, I, I stand up, I turn on my camera and I, I'm trying to get some footage and I, I got some decent footage and, uh, I put my binoculars up. I'm like, Hey, that's a big nine who I, I deemed to be a shooter. Um, you know, he's one of those just barely makes the, the hit list type of bucks. And that, um, I just want to say that your classification of just barely makes the hit list is a crazy one from my perspective. <laughs> Cause yeah. that is a stud. That buck yeah. is a stud for yeah, nine, for 99% of guys out there. Yeah. And you know, like, and I told, like I said to the guy at work, I mean, I, I am blessed to have really good property and being able to make the decision to pass on some of the deer that I pass on. And, and I've not, I have not shoot, you know, sh- um, I haven't shot a lot of giant deer. Um, but I've passed a ton of mediocre deer in my opinion, what I would consider mediocre to get to, to allow for this age range. Cause I, I have managed property to the South of me. I have managed property to the north of me. And for the most part, the other hunters that hunt in the area that I hunt, they also kind of have the same thought as me. They're not shoot they're you know, at you know, at the least they're shooting a four year old. So can I uh, can I ask you another question? Maybe also add disclaimer. Yeah. Um, without divulging too much too much information, you are hunting in a particularly good part of Iowa, surrounded by some very serious managers. So we're talking right top of the chain. Um, so for you, Dan, in that area where your neighbors and people around there are top of the top when it comes to the kind of deer they're trying to shoot, what do you consider a mediocre deer that, that you've been passing up on? Oh, I mean, without sounding cocky, because I mean, in the industry, and it's sad that it has to be like this, you start talking about sizes and what you've passed and whatnot. People think you have an ego and that's, and you know me, I, I don't think I have one. Um, but I, I passed what a couple of years ago, I passed a hundred and forty five hundred and fifty inch eight pointer. Wow. And he, he was probably a four year old. Now the next year he turned into a 175 inch, like 10 pointer with junk all over it. So that justifies my actions. Okay. So that, that year I passed that buck, I ate my tag. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I'd rather go for a, a really big maturity or, you know, in that four or five and older category than, than have to sit or then, then kill something, which I've seen firsthand, not only on show cameras, but from the stand, like when, when I, when I pass 150 inch, eight pointer and the next year blows up to 175 as a, as a, a five-year-old. I mean, why wouldn't you do it? You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not the kind of person who, who is, I need to have a ton of deer on my wall. Number one, I don't, my wife wouldn't let me. And number two, <laughs> uh, it's just like, you, I don't know. You got to give a deer a chance to reach their potential. And some people can do that. Some people can't. Um, I'm just blessed that I, I have the opportunity to do that. Yeah. I think it's, it's all about your different situations and what makes you happy. And for right. you, you are in a situation where you are blessed to have opportunities at a lot of really good deer and you yeah. can make that choice to say, okay, this is what makes me happy. And this is what I want to work towards. And I can do that. And at the same time, you know, there's probably some guys in South Carolina or something who 
see a 110 inch buck and that gets them really excited and, and that's the deer they're targeting and that's cool too. So right. I love and the it, fact that everyone can have their, their own different thing and, and what works for them. Right. And, and, and my, my stepdad and the rest of my family, well, I got an uncle, he moved to Kansas five years ago, four years in a row. He shot a booner every year, a deer over 170. And wow. one of them, one of them was 211 inches. Good night. Yeah. So we're not going to, we're going to exclude him from the conversation, but <laughs> the rest of my family, if it's a, if it's Brown, it's down and they hunt in the same areas that I hunt. So, so it's just, it's just a matter of what makes you happy. Yeah. Uh, that makes them happy and this makes me happy. So yeah. it's a beautiful thing. Yep. Yep. But back to the story. Yes. Buck comes in the big, the big nine pointer comes in. Um, I would put him somewhere around the 145, one one fifty, Um, and everybody's going to be able to see the footage. I don't know if I'm going to do it Wednesday or Thursday. I'll post the footage and uh, everybody will get a chance to look at it. But, um, he, it's not that I wouldn't, I say, cause I, I text you and I said, Hey, I, here's the deer I passed this morning. Yeah. And I, I really don't want to call it a pass because he came, he, they were coming right towards me. And I did something in the tree where the younger buck kind of caught me moving and he looked up at me, but it was one of those quick looks and then put his head back down and started walking, walking kind of a, a loop around me. Well, what the big buck did was he saw this buck change his course. And instead of walking and taking the same course, the smaller buck did, he, he angled off to where the buck was going. And what that did is it put him. And I think when I ranged the spot that he was at was somewhere between 42 and 45 yards and uh, quartering away. Okay. And for me, that is, that, that gets to my range, especially when the deer is quartering away. Okay. So, so two things happened. One, the deer was kind of what I would consider a teeter-totter buck. Um, and two, he was at a less than perfect angle for the shot. So the other third one was I had to, I really had to watch my movement because remember I had two does in the area behind me. So all these things kind of played, played their role into me not taking a shot on the, on this deer. So let me ask you this, Dan, if he was at 20, would you have taken that shot broadside 20 yards standing still looking probably, the other way? Probably. Yes. Okay. Probably. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, it was an awesome that, encounter. yeah, that deer, that deer is probably a four or five year old buck. Um, I have previous, I have previous, uh, pictures of him from previous years and he's going to be a nine pointer probably the rest of his life. Um, and you know that people say, Hey, if you're not going to take a shot at a deer the very first day of the season, then you shouldn't shoot him the last day of the season. But this is one of those scenarios where I didn't have the optimal shot. So I didn't take it. Fair enough. You never need, never should push it if you don't feel comfortable. That's right. That's right. Now, Let's see, Sunday morning, or that was Saturday uh, morning. I'm like, okay, so I went back to the stand uh, Saturday night after I watched uh, Iowa totally dominate Indiana. And, <laughs> Congrats uh, on that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And um, and then I get back up in the stand, and, oh, I see two does way in the distance. And then probably 30 minutes before last light, probably a hundred yards away from me in this strip of grass that cuts right between two bean fields, uh, 
a giant 10 pointer stood up and, um, he had a ton of mass. I, I think there's a potential. It could have been Mark Kenyon, Oof. but, but, um, I, I, I saw a lot of mass and it was kind of right at last light. So, um, and he was walking away from me. So I, I really didn't get a chance to observe exactly who he was, but as soon as he stood up, I knew he was a shooter. Um, and I can't shoot a hundred yards. So I tried grunting one or two more times and, and then he was gone. So of course, sun, Sunday morning, I'm back in the same exact area trying to see, basically I'm trying at this point, knowing that, um, I've pretty much worn out my exit and entry route to the stand. I'm now observing the rest of the area, trying to figure out where these bucks are moving. And, um, and hopefully, you know, being able to catch something, come back to the bed. And the only thing I saw Sunday morning was three does. And then I packed it up and um, I head home to my wife and daughter. Man, well, you had one heck of a good weekend. Yeah, that kind of, although, you know, there's no deer on the ground. I I, I got, it, fit, it feels good to see the caliber of deer that you're actually after. Knowing, say, hey, now I can start tweaking my, my setups. Oh, yeah. Gosh, I'm a... Uh... I'm just dying to have that feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I still have not seen a shooter. So, but so you had you had some company this weekend, right? That is correct. Yeah, this weekend really for me wasn't about trying to see a shooter. It was um, I had my dad and my good friend Josh down for the weekend, and we were really just trying to get some does on the ground. So it was really about having a good time, spending time together, and hopefully putting some back straps in the freezer and. uh Unfortunately, things didn't go quite as planned for most of the trip. Um, we had a great time, um, but Saturday and Sunday, we pretty much got blanked. Um, we were hunting in a spot where I, I thought there was a good number of does, and it was an area that I wasn't worried about you know, putting three guys on and all that pressure because I wasn't really trying to hunt there for bucks at all. So we yeah. hunted Saturday morning and evening again um, just to try to get in the woods and shoot a doe. Saturday morning, none of us saw anything. Saturday night, Josh was the only person to see a deer. He just saw a little six-pointer. So rough first day, um, but we did have elk chili for dinner, which was a mm. mm-hmm, big, big success. My uh, my first chili from my elk from September. So that was pretty cool. And uh, then Sunday morning, headed um, back to the same area. Um, I saw one little Michigan 11-pointer, um, which is what we call spikes in Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> so that was uh, my excitement from the morning. But what's funny is... You know, I really, really badly wanted my dad to get a shot at a doe. And I had him set up on a little patch. He hunts in the ground blind, and he was right on this little strip of cut corn that was just money. It was the only cut corn in the area. You know, the deer should have been flooding to it, really. Um, we got in there early enough that we hoped that he could sneak in there back behind this hill, and he could hunt this little back corner that's hidden, and then hopefully have any deer in the larger field come over that hill and give him a shot. Well, he didn't see anything all morning. So around 10 o'clock, I came out of my tree stand, hiked over to where he was at, and started helping him pack up. And as he's packing up, Josh had walked over from where he was hunting. He's standing on the edge of the field, maybe 30 yards away. And I turn to look at Josh, and I just start seeing him do this kind of hand motion with his finger, like pointing over my back, like really aggressively, just kind of signaling, turn around, look. And I turn around, and there's four does that just crested the hill, like 40 yards away, that that would have walked right past my dad, giving him just a perfect shot. Um, So if we had been just 10 minutes later, those deer would have came by, and my dad would have would have got a, a nice shot at one. So that was a bummer, um, but that's how hunting goes, right? 
Yeah, I'll tell you what that that you said that I saw, and according to my trail cameras, because and I stayed in the first. Let's see, Saturday morning, I got out of my stand after I saw all that action. Um, they all headed away from me. I I got out early. Okay, uh, I got out of my stand, and it was probably somewhere around the eight thirty nine o'clock mark. And so then Saturday night, when I came back and I saw that big buck stand out of the bed, I go, you know what? I missed him come back to bed. So Saturday morning uh, or Sunday morning, I waited um, until like 930. And right around the 930 mark is when I saw some deer movement. So I witnessed, and according to my trail cameras as well, some some late morning movement. Like uh, nine, I have daylight pictures of Mark Kenyon at 930. Another bu- the buck I shot last year I called Tupac, um, him uh, around nine nine thirty broad daylight pictures wow. up on their up all on their feet. Jeez. So something something was happening out in the woods and I don't know everywhere where these deer were moving late and I don't I don't know what that is. I think um, I might. Okay, what's your idea? My idea is, um, and I didn't actually pay attention to this, I don't remember, but my buddy texted me Sunday morning or Saturday morning, one of the mornings, and said, hey, it's a late setting moon today. Mm. So he said this, the moon is setting late in the morning, which, you know, as we talked about before, typically mm-hmm. will result in a little bit later morning activity. So maybe that's you're, what it was. You're right. And it did. And I don't know what it was. And this could have been like the peak of it. But every one of my shooters that I have still on the property, and I think there's four of them, four or five, they all were all captured on camera on October 7th. Wow. Now that was cold front passing through or anything during that time frame? Or? I don't know. I don't know. I think it was like right in the middle huh. of that cold front um, because it might have been, oh, geez, it would have been Tuesday of this week, Tuesday or Wednesday of this past week. And, uh, and I, I was trying to look at the weather. The weather was, it seemed consistent of the previous, the couple previous days. So, Hey, you know what? I think I know what it was. What was it? So if it was October 7th last week, which was a Tuesday, mm-hmm. they knew that you were recording the wired to hunt podcast that day and that you weren't going to be hunting. So they're safe. Right. That's right. <laughs> See, I bet you some of these deer have iPhones and iPads and, and technology now. We got to be careful about what we divulge on this podcast, dude. I know. I know. I will not be in the woods this weekend because I'm going to a baby shower. <laughs> I hope that you're not telling the truth. Are you? I'm not. I'm joking. Okay. Like, I would, like I would go to the baby shower. Are you kidding me? With that beard that I saw you're wearing right now, you'd be scaring some, some expectant mothers. <laughs> Uh, well, we are just about time to, uh, to welcome our guest onto the show. But before we do that really quick, I do need to finish my story and give props to Josh because Sunday night he did kill a doe. Awesome. So that was a great ending to the trip. He, uh, he double longed a nice little doe and, uh, we got our, we got her in the back of the truck and home that night and he's got some fresh venison. So it did end our weekend on a high note. Perfect. Perfect. So that said though. Our main topic today is on this upcoming time from this time of year right now, the middle of October, that so many people refer to as the October lull. 
It's impossible. It doesn't happen. It's uh, I know me and you. Me and you are against each other on this topic. I well, feel well. I don't, I don't know about that. I don't, I'm I'm more on your camp than I think you think I am. Okay. Um, you know, I'm writing a lot about this this week, but I really think that the October lull isn't not ne- excuse me is not necessarily something that happens by default, but I do think it's something that sometimes occurs. It, it definitely occurs in some areas due to a number of different factors. Excuse me, I've got the hiccups because I'm drinking a cold beverage right now. <laughs> now, I think that a big part of it is increased hunting pressure. So if you're in an area that doesn't have increased hunting pressure, you might not see that lull. But plenty of people are out there hunting a lot, and that causes a self-induced lull. And then there's a couple other different things like changing food sources, changing cover, and all those things just cause shifts in deer patterns. And I think this lull that people experience is many times due to the fact that they're not adjusting to the changing patterns. That's my hypothesis on the whole deal. Gotcha. Um, and I think I'm not too different. That I don't think that's too far away from what you believe, is it? Well, yeah, I, I, I definitely feel that deer movement can be affected by, obviously, changing food sources, weather, and pressure. But when I think of a lull, I think of a deer naturally reacting to certain things. And if you're in the wrong spot, you're in the wrong spot. Don't call that a lull. If you're on a cornfield and all the, and they combine it and all the food's gone and the deer go to the next cornfield or stay in the timber and eat acorns, that's not a lull. That's you not being in the right place. And I agree. And if all of a sudden hot temperatures come up and the deer bed down until right at dark, then come out, that's not a lull either. Like when I, when I feel like, I think that lull is honestly, I think it was made up to sell products that to, to hunters to get them to buy scents and, rattling bags and and grunt calls and and all this junk that you spray and slime and all that stuff to get them to come out earlier when man it's 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 nature you, th- you think i'm gonna go outside when it's 110 degrees outside i sweat so bad no i'm not you know like i just don't i it's it's just nature taking its course it's not it's i don't know i don't know i just get fired up i don't I'm so against the lull because I think that that was created by someone who hunts the same tree stand every day of the season. And I think I agree. I agree with hundred percent what you're saying. I I don't think it's like if, if all things were equal and no one changed their tactics, it just deer naturally are going to be different or acting different this time of year. No deer. I mean, numerous studies have proven that deer activity, especially buck activity steadily increases throughout the month. Um, But I do think that people are making mistakes that result in them feeling like there's a lull. I think that's right. I think that's a reality. I um, agree with that. And so I think that as I'm talking about the October lull, that's what I'm referencing. Yeah. And I think um, in general, this middle October, I want to talk to Dan in fault about how to hunt the middle of October leading into the end of October, what many people, people refer to as the October lull. We're going to get his opinion on what he thinks about that, how we should be hunting, what different ideas and tactics we should, we should be taking to the woods, and, and a whole lot more. So... If you're ready, Dan, I'm going to start referring to you as Dallas so that okay. we don't get everyone all mixed up. And Sounds I th- good. I think it's now time to welcome Mr. Dan Infault to the show. Right. Let's get him on the phone and he can straighten this out. All right. Well, welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. 
yeah, we are, you know, as we mentioned in the, the kind of beginning of this podcast, we're just really excited to have you back on the show. Um, I don't know if I've actually told you this, Dan, but we have gotten more emails, messages, um, and just feedback on the first episode you joined us on than anything else. Um, people really enjoyed hearing from you on the different tactics that you're taking into the Whitetail Woods. So we're just thrilled to, to have you joining us again and to pick your brain, especially during the hunting season, to figure out you know what we need to be doing in the woods. So so thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Yeah, and you know that being the case, you know, as we t- discussed a little bit ago, the main topic for our conversation here today is going to be hunting this mid-October time frame. You know that many people refer to as the October lull. Uh, but before we dive into that, I know that you're actually doing a lot better when it comes to hunting this season than me or Dallas because I believe you have two bucks on the ground already. Um, could you share with us a quick uh, a quick story about how those two hunts went down? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of people look at my success and think that it's, uh, you know, solid action, and it's not. You know, you know, I do a lot of hopping around, a lot of uh, sitting and seeing nothing. But uh, I'm hopping from bed and area to bed and area at this time of the year, you know, early season through October, mid-October. And uh, uh, early season, um, the first hunt I went into public land, which was uh, like three days into the season, uh, I went to one of my favorite spots where there's usually something good hold up, and I wasn't disappointed. I had uh, uh, several bucks come past. Uh, they all came out of the same bedding area as a bachelor group, and uh, all of them were in velvet, but the velvet ones were all a little too small, and uh, I shot one that was uh, out of velvet. Um, and then, it, you know, it got slow again, and I just took one again the other day. And that one, I, I went on a blind hunt, a place I've never been before, I went back there via maps and uh, real remote, uh, about two miles from the truck, and uh, took a buck on the first sit in that tree. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. Just borrow it, 
get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear that the, the season started so well for you. Now, on that on that second hunt, you said you went in blind based purely off the maps. Could you tell us a little bit about what it was you were looking for on those maps that led you to pinpoint this is the spot I got to hunt? Well, um, this was a swampy area that was a lot of marsh. And in that kind of situation, um, I look at aerials. Now, if it's, you know, more hilly land, I look at topos. Uh, so in this case, I was looking at an aerial, and I was uh, pinpointing on uh, points of brush coming off of uh, islands of timber in the swamp and uh, looking for, you know, uh, small islands of brush that were mixed into the to cattails and stuff, which would create bedding. And it looked real good on one side of this uh, island, and I had never gotten back that far. And it was a Saturday, and I had the next day off, so I thought, what the heck? So you just headed in there, set up, and it was the right call, huh? Yeah, um, this was a, a property that was a little strange. It wasn't public, it wasn't private. It's a conservation property where you, I would do work for a chance to hunt, and every time I would do four hours of work, they put my name in a hat. Hmm. And that's the property I was trying to draw out of. You know, they got a, a, an area that's uh, mapped out and they have different units. And uh, that was the area I was trying to draw. And I got it for October, and uh, <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Sorry. No problem. Uh, what was the question? You had just talked about the fact you had drawn that unit, and um, yeah, I was I was curious about you know how you ended up setting up there specifically. It sounds like there was a couple islands of cover, and you did, was it just the wind was right to be on that side of the cover, or or how did you pick that actual setup? Yeah, actually, we were, we were waiting for the wind to be correct. We needed some sort of south wind, and uh, east would be best, southeast. Um, and we actually got that wind on a Saturday, so um, we were good to go. Um, that that put the, the, the wind blowing in from the swamp across the dry land. Okay. Awesome. So we, Actually, we did that property kind of uh, in an interesting way, and uh, this is probably something interesting to your uh, viewers. Um uh, a friend of mine who also, did, you know, hunts the same area, drew the same time frame as me. And so we got together before the hunt and drew up a plan. And and what I did was I marked all the suspected bedding areas on this map. And uh, we weren't allowed to pre-scout this property. You're not allowed in there unless you're hunting. Um, so I marked everything via map. And we went in and stage hunt our way across. And the way the property is situated... Um, the neighbors, neighboring pressure, uh, neighboring properties get a lot of pressure. So the area we're in is the best area. So as we staged our way in, we're actually bumping each bedding area and pushing the bucks further and further back if they're in there. So the further you get in, the better the hunting gets, hmm. if that makes sense. So are you purposely pushing through those bedding areas to do that? Or are you just saying that by default, given the... by default, yeah. Okay, and then if we can't hunt the bedding area, we do bump it on purpose. And I think I've heard you this called stacking bedding areas. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Yeah. 
So once you stack a bedding area, let's say you've pushed through a couple because you need to get to this back or this farther back piece and you, you think you've got more of those bucks in that back bedding area, are they still going to come out the direction that they came from or that you came from? Or are you trying to move, You let's say you bump them, you're coming in from the south, heading north. They know that the pressure came from the south. Are you then trying to get back around them since you think they'll leave their bedding area to go away from that? Or are they still coming back down the direction you came whenever they leave that bedding area? They're going from the bedding area to food um, or, or to, you know, if it was later in the year to doze. Um, they're not really, you know, uh, the pressure at the first bedding area, they don't want to be somewhere where their um, bedding was uh, compromised by a human scent. So they just move to a different bedding area, basically. They just keep moving, and you know. And what I'm trying to do is get close enough to get them in daylight at those bedding areas. Yeah. Okay. This is definitely a topic I want to dive into deeper as we go. But what were you going to say, Dallas? I was going to say, so when you told you told us there, it's a two-mile walk back there. So I take it those are all-day sits for you, or are they? No. Um, uh-uh. No. So it's just morning hunts. No, just evening. Evening this hunts, time of year, okay. I don't hunt mornings. I gotcha. Um, on, on this particular hunt, you know, um, you can't take ATVs back there or or any type of um, vehicle. And there is some dry land you get to walk across before you hit the swamp, but it's two miles from where I park to where I, to where I, where we hunted. Wow, that's a hike. That's yeah, definitely hike. <laughs> um, what's interesting is is we didn't run into bucks in the first hunts uh, until we got to you know one spot I really liked, but we couldn't get back there until um, we hunted the spots before it, and we had the correct wind. And when we got that correct wind, um, it was Mario's turn to the guy I was hunting with to to hunt a better spot. So he went into that spot and he had three bucks go by, and that was Friday. And then Saturday we went around the backside, you know, to the very far back. And I only had the unit for October and then somebody else gets it. So, uh, as we were going back, uh, we had to cross a river, which is nice because I don't think anybody gets across that river except for us because it's way over boots. Um, but as soon as we got across that river, we jumped two bucks and they both looked to be shooters and they ran in the direction that we were going. Not hard, just trotted off that way. And when we got around the corner and Mario got set up and I kept going, I went on the backside of that uh, island where I was uh, expecting to find a sign from deer coming out of the bedding I found on uh, the map. And I wasn't very impressed with the rubs. I mean, there was no fresh rubs. There's old ones, but nothing fresh. But there was trails and tracks coming out of the swamp. Um, and I took the property line all the way to, to as far as I could go. And all of a sudden I saw one real big fresh rub and I stopped and I started looking at it and all of a sudden in the corner of my eye I saw movement and there's a really nice buck walking straight to me wow it's like I got behind the tree and knocked an arrow and it was about 50 yards out and coming straight at me and all of a sudden I hear this commotion to my side and I look to my side and there's another buck and he runs in the swamp and the first one follows him and I realized you know being that it's only three in the afternoon it's probably the two bucks I just kicked this direction so they run back into the swamp and I go and I turn around and I go back down to the point of the Island where I intended to sit in the first place, but didn't see a lot of sign. And there was uh, seven trails coming out of the swamp. And I, and one thing that I do when I'm on islands like that is I look in the swamp and I try to determine from a distance 
what tree is going to be the best tree? Where would I be, you know, best off? And what would be the best direction for me to get in there? I think a lot of guys would go in there and walk around. And then what happens is a deer comes out and smells where you were and boogers before you can get a shot. So I always pick that stuff from a distance. And I picked the tree, slipped in there, and I was real happy when I got in there because the sign changed from what was on the island. All the, you, could, you could see trails coming from all those little plots that I thought would be bedding, all meeting in front of this tree, and there's a big scrape there. So I get up the tree, and uh, um, a little while later, I hear two bucks get up next to me. And start sparring. You can't see him because it's so thick in that swamp. Uh, kind of right where I expected him to be, but instead of coming towards me, they went the other way. And uh, out of desperation, I tried grunting to him, and I actually got one of them to turn around and come back. <laughs> and I'm pretty positive that that's the first two bucks that we bumped. I think I bumped them back there, almost got them on foot, and then they relocated to that spot and got up, and I was able to get one to come in anyways and, and shoot it. Wow. And so that, the one you shot was the one you grunted in? Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow. Sounds like a heck of a hunt between the close call on the ground and then grunting one in deep there in the swamp. That's uh, quite an experience, I imagine. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, I, a lot of the stuff you just talked about there, I think we want to dive into. Um, but I want to take a step back here real quick to get started um, because, you know, this time frame, this middle portion of October, lots of people refer to that as the October lull. So me and Dallas were just talking about this, our different opinions on this, but I, w- I want to hear from you, Dan. Is the October lull, is that fact or fiction? You know, um, I would say it's, it's, it's somewhat fact. Um, somewhere in the middle there. I mean, you do get less movement in daylight um, during this time frame. I think it's starting to pick up now. But during that early October frame, I think that you do get less movement. But I don't see a lull because I'm pushing those dead areas. I'm still getting them, you know, in daylight, seeing them. But I'm definitely seeing them closer to the edge of darkness. And a lot of the bucks I am seeing that are good bucks um, during that time frame are only getting 75, 100 yards from those beds. So I think where most people are seeing a lull is they're sitting over food plots or food sources you know, or acorn patches or stuff like that, and they're seeing less movement in daylight. Um, I'm still seeing the same amount of movement at that time frame. I'm just seeing it later in the day. Okay. And what do you think is causing that decline in deer activity that most people are seeing? You, you said that these deer are staying closer to their bedding areas later. Um, I've got some different ideas, and there's been a number of different hypotheses you know, thrown around there about what causes that later movement or less um, decreased movement. But what do you think is causing that, Dan? For me, it would have to be a guess. Um, I think some of it has to do with the heat and the fact that they're changing their coats to winter's, winter coats because it almost seems like when that cold hits, you know, that, that period of time in the evening when it gets cold is when they get up and move. But uh, that's pure speculation on my part. Okay. And maybe, I imagine maybe some hunting pressure might cause that too from a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But, you know, I hunt some spots that uh, don't get much pressure. And I still see it. And I'm on places with pressure, and I see it. So, okay, interesting. So then, that being the case, you know, this time frame, you said that you're still seeing that activity because you're pushing it close to beds and close to bedding mm-hmm. areas. Um, and I think 
you know, that is I'm sure something I want to talk about here. And are there any other major tactics other than that that you're employing this time of year to get close to those deer, or does your entire strategy revolve around those bedding areas at this time? I would never say my entire strategy revolves around any one thing. Um, but there's one tip I'd, I'd love to give your uh, listeners that they probably haven't heard before. Okay. And this is going to sound a little weird to you, but I, I guarantee it's true. Um, right around the first week of October to the second week, um, maple leaves, when they first start turning orange and dropping, when they just first start dropping, they have a bigger draw than acorns. Um, hmm. But you have to have isolated uh, maple leaves. Them things hit them like you wouldn't believe. I think they get a sweetness or something when they first die, when they start dropping. Um, but they're a huge draw. I first learned that from uh, Andre Diacquisto. Uh, he told me that when we were on a hunt one time, and, and I really paid attention after that, and he was dead on. I, I observed it many times and moving to these uh, little maple patches. Wow. That's definitely something I never thought about. I got, a maple, I got a maple tree in my backyard. Maybe I should hunt in my backyard tonight. <laughs> <laughs> How close is the bedding? <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably a couple miles. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that said, then let's let's cycle back to the bedding area topic because I think there's a whole lot we could talk about in this. And we talked a little bit about it back in March or April, whenever we chatted with you the first time, Dan. Um, but I guess let's start at the highest level and then just keep on diving deeper. Can you give us a high-level overview of, of what you're doing when it comes to hunting these bedding areas? When you're heading in for a hunt, what are you thinking about? Why are you doing it, and, and how are you setting up? Well, there's two different ways I, I go in on these bedding areas, and, and the best way is if I've pre-scouted it and I've gone in and say, January, February, and really taken a good look at this bedding area and looked at how the deer stage and looked from their perspective at how to set up. That's the best scenario because then when I go back, and I go in for the first time and hunt, I've got a really good shot at killing them. Uh, the second scenario is I haven't hunted the area, and like this last buck, I'm going in and I'm guessing on the bedding. I think I do a little better than other people on that aspect because I've been looking at these beds for so many years that I have a good good knack of reading them, if you know, if you know what I mean. But uh, those are my two main scenarios, is guessing the bedding or knowing it from previous scouting. Okay. And so how about we go, let's talk about that first scenario. And then I, I really want to dive into that second scenario too, because that might apply to people at this point who, who maybe are just trying to figure this out as they go. But for someone who already has these bedding areas scouted out, let's say like you, you already have a whole lot of different bedding areas across numerous properties that you plan on hunting. You know, how do you have those prepared? Do you have stands hung up? Or I think from what I remember, lots of times you're setting up on the, on the go, but can you talk to us about how you are choosing which ones you're going to hunt on a given day and then, you know, when you're heading in and, and what do those setups look like? Okay. Well, you know, some of the bedding areas are based on, uh, like, uh, acorns, you know, or corn or, or some food source. And if you know that food source and knowing that food source is available, you know, when to hunt it, um, some, you know, I don't have any idea why they're bedding there except for that. It's a good bedding area. And I got to kind of, you know, go in and check it out and maybe give it a hunt in September, maybe a hunt later in October, maybe a rut hunt and try and figure out when they're there. Um, ah. Are you using wind direction at all to help make that decision? Is that uh, from what oh, I... Oh, absolutely. Um, 
but but there's a, there's one thing about wind is is it's more important on uh, the hill country direction wise than it is in swamps. A lot of times in swamps they bet on these points and and fingers and uh, little patches, um, not based on the wind at all. So you can have the wind in your face and and really do well. But in like hill country, um, they bet on that leeward side on the points and such. So you got to play that wind a little bit. You got to play that off wind um, if you're going to get them on the um, uphill side which is a lot better than hunting downhill because then you get the thermals busting you. So, yeah, wind, wind plays a huge direction. Uh, I mean, a, a huge – wind plays a, a huge factor in uh, in choosing where you're going to hunt and, and why, and more more so than just keeping your wind from getting to the buck. In a lot of cases, they bed in a certain position because of the wind. Can you tell us a little more about that last part there, you know, why they bed in a certain area. Um, there's a lot of different different opinions on this. You know, bucks will enter a bedding area with the wind in their face or they'll bed with the wind over their backs or they'll only leave with the wind in their face. You know, what what's your take on that, on how deer use the wind when choosing where to bed and how to leave their bed and, and approach the bed in the first place? That's a good question and one I hear a lot. And as you can imagine, I've observed a lot of deer going in and out of beds. And the overall majority of them, come into a bed by circling around and jay-hooking and smelling from downwind. They just don't feel comfortable going in there for some reason without the wind in their face. Um, so it makes it kind of difficult to hunt those bedding areas in the morning because you kind of get, they kind of come in from a different direction each time. So those trails you see um, at the bedding areas are usually the deer leaving the beds, not going into them because they come in kind of weird. Um, but when they, when they leave those beds, I don't see any relation to the wind whatsoever. What I do see is if the wind is not in their favor, if it's to their back, they come out a little more cautiously and a little slower, but they still go the direction they want to go. Hmm. So then when you're choosing where to set up, you're not thinking about where will a buck want to go in the evening. You know, you're hunting in the evening, so you're not thinking about where is he going to want to go based on the wind. You're just thinking about this morning what was the wind direction that would cause him to, to move into this bedding area? Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's true to a degree. I mean, like I said, a lot of the swamp bedding is regardless of the wind. Yeah. But if it is a wind-specific bed, yeah, I'm certainly thinking about, you know, if he's bedded there in the morning. However, um, I've seen bucks get up and move when the wind changes during the day. So that can have a bearing on it, too. So you might want to be set up on where the wind is now or where it's going to be in the evening. Okay. I got a question for you. You mentioned earlier that you're not hunting mornings this type of time of year. Can you, uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Why you're not uh, spending time in the stand in the mornings? Well, um, as you can imagine, I've been hunting these beds like this for many, many, many years. Um, you know, what I've found is when I go into these bedding areas in the morning, um, kicking the bucks out of the bedding areas um, before daylight, they're already bedded. Um, what I see during daylight in the mornings at this time of the year, it's usually immature bucks or does. The mature ones are already bedded. Okay. All right. It, now, it is, is that the same for your marsh and your hill country? Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. See, now me, on the other hand, I love hunting mornings. And, mm-hmm. um, but like, unlike you, I'm not a, 
I'm not a huge bed hunter, right? I, I like hunting transitions between food and bedding in the mornings. And, um, that's where I, that's where I had my success this, this weekend anyway, although I didn't kill, I still uh, had an encounter with a, a pretty good deer. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot, uh, Dallas. Um, and I think maybe again, I probably already mentioned this on previous episodes, but I, I continue to wonder if this is again, because of the differences in pressure between, right. you know, what Dan might be hunting and what I might be hunting in Michigan or Wisconsin versus, you know, the properties that you're there on Iowa. Um, I don't know. I well, just... I, I got a comment on this. Um, you, you know, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Andre Diaquisto, uh, has shot in a lot of, a lot of big bucks. Matter of fact, he's, if you put him in the books, he has more Boone and Crockett's with a bow than anybody in the world. And I noticed that he's killing a lot of those big bucks, um, in the mornings. He loves hunting mornings. And, uh, I was interviewing him for something I was doing. And, uh, I said, you know, I gotta ask you, how do you keep killing these bucks in the morning? And I told him the problem I had that I'm kicking them out of their beds and stuff. And he said to me, he says, Dan, I got the same issue. But look at the dates when I killed those deer. He says, I'm waiting for the moon to be overhead before I go in there. He says, and when I, when I have a moon overhead in the morning, uh, within the first hour of daylight, he says, those bucks get back to those beds at gray light, and I'm able to shoot them in daylight. I'm really glad you brought this up, Dan. So, so they're coming back to the beds later than they normally would? With the moon overhead, yeah. Okay. Or underfoot. Okay. So can you? He, he seems to think that the overhead moon has a little more influence than the, the underfoot one, um, but I'm not so sure. Can you can you go into this a little more for people that maybe might not be as familiar with underfoot, overhead, or all these different moon um, time frames? I know you you published something on your website uh, these moon dates that tend to lead to earlier movement in the evening or later moving movement in the morning. Um, could you just explain that in detail for us? Cause it, the whole moon thing is something that so many people have questions about and so many people don't really understand. So can you give us your whole kind of one-on-one on that piece? Okay. You know, I don't understand why they do it, but I have seen plenty of evidence that I know that it goes on and there's more movement when the, when the moon is straight up or straight down, there's more movement with buck movement. And when that happens, um, in the last couple hours of daylight or the first couple hours of daylight, you get more buck movement uh, or more deer movement overall. It's hard to notice um, on the public lands I hunt, but uh, the few times I was over by like uh, Andre's hunt and managed land, um, you could set your watch to what time the food plots would fill up based on the moon chart. And it was amazing uh, to just sit back and, and watch that. Um, the way where I got my information from is Jeff Murray. Um, he passed away a few years ago, but his his uh, family still puts out a chart. I think the chart's like uh, five or ten bucks. They sell it on um, uh, his website, which if you just search uh, Jeff Murray Moon Guide, you'll find it. Um, I don't believe all of his principles about where to hunt and stuff like that. Obviously, I'm pushing bedding areas, and he's talking about when they're in food sources and stuff based on the moon. My thing is the movement based on the moon overhead or underfoot. And so this chart, what is this, what is this chart showing? Is it showing you, it's just telling you the times? It shows you what, the time frames that the moon is overhead and underfoot, the dates. And, uh, and it gives you, he has like a hot thing on there for time frame. But I think you can get that information free too. You can just search it online and 
and uh, there's different charts different people have out there, but but some other people have uh, different ideas on, on uh, moon charts and moon position and stuff too, so you can get kind of confused if you start searching it um, yeah. in other sources. And and you you've uh, put some of that on the hunting beast, right? If I if I uh, found that, could I link to that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's stickied up on the top of the uh, deer hunting uh, forum. Um, I put down the the dates and times that uh, I feel are the best for for daylight movement. Okay. I also put down based on the moon when the um, rut cruise times should be. Okay. Interesting. And so, uh, again, based on these charts and the, the, the rising and setting of the moon, this is if you see one of these charts or one of these time periods falling within that same time period of first light or last light, those are times when you might get that earlier or later movement. And so that might be a time, even in the middle of October, to push into one of these, pushing closer to a bedding area or one of these hotter spots because you might just get a couple extra minutes of movement, right? Correct. And, and and really, I mean, if you can get 10 extra minutes of movement, they can get a long ways in 10 minutes. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. So now how about our, our second scenario that you mentioned a while back, Dan, which was if you haven't pre-scouted an area, um, let's say there's a guy listening to the show right now and he's thinking to himself, okay, I'm, I'm having horrible success right now. I've been hunting field edges and I'm not seeing any bucks, but I hear Dan is telling me to try to push closer, closer to some of these bedding areas for that guy that hasn't done the preseason scouting. All he has is, you know, what he knows about his property and, and some maps. How can he go about finding these bedding areas and then, you know, making those moves? How are you doing that? And what should he know this other guy? Okay. You, you know, that's real terrain specific, but um, say it's a, uh, a marsh, a cattail marsh. That's, to me, that's the easiest thing to read because um, you can see it visually so easy. If you looked at a cattail marsh and you, and you look at uh, the uh, timber edge where it meets the cattails, you know, you got this straight edge of trees meeting cattails. And somewhere along that line, you're going to see like a, a finger of trees go out or a point. Right at that the point, the tip of that finger, I guarantee you there's going to be a good buck bed. You see these little uh, islands, they got little uh, brushy points that come off them. Guarantee you at the tip of that, there'll be a buck bed. And when you look at a swamp and you start filling that whole thing with timber, you're going to see the same stuff. It's just harder to visualize uh, because you're going to be able to see the different colors and the different types of trees. The hardwoods look different than the, the tamaracks and such, right? And it's going to be the same thing. You're looking at those island tips. You're looking at those those changes in the contour, that straight line along a hard transition of thick meets, you know, open. And when you start on the public land, you've got to start looking for the remoter transitions um, so that you're not sitting there hunting where everybody else is hunting because people will follow those transitions too, like a trail. So you got to try to find the remote ones that people don't go to. Um, now, if you get into hilly terrain, then you're looking for points and fingers and, and stuff like that. Okay. And you're using a topple. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. 
Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know, super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. Just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. So I've got my topo and I've found a finger coming off a ridge or maybe if I'm in a marshy area, I've found that finger of timber or of high ground that pushes into the swamp. Um, am I just, am I just going to find that spot in the map, decide, okay, I know that there's a hot food source on the other side of this. So there's a decent chance he might be bedding out on that finger. I'm going to try to get as close as I can and set up on, on any random day, or maybe on one of those moon days, or is there anything else that he needs to be thinking about before moving in to try to hunt that bed he thinks is there? Well, what I do is if I'm pretty sure there's going to be a bed there, or I think there's going to be a bed, I just hunt it. If I can get within a hundred yards, I'm sure I can get a, a, uh, a chance at that buck in daylight. If there's a spot where I can't get that close to that buck, can't get close enough to that bed, I got to hang back like 200 yards or so. That's the spot I save for that moon day or that cold front that comes in and gets them to move a little earlier. Um, those are the days I save for that. Otherwise, um, I'm hunting those spots one after another, pushing as close as I can. Because you're, you know, hunting this way, you're not going to see bucks every time. They got different bedding areas. They're all over the place. And what I'm doing is I'm trying each bedding area. And once you're sensing there, they're going to stay out of there for a while. So it makes the other bedding areas better. So you just keep, you know, hopping around and, and hitting these things. And you're going to have a few that don't pay off. And in uh, the more of an amateur you are at it, the more you're going to have some that don't pay off. And, you know, and you just got to keep hitting it until it works. And the hardest part for a guy um, who doesn't hunt like this is keeping up his confidence level. Because, like I said, even I, you know, I'll go five, six hunts without seeing a deer. You know, but I guarantee you, in the long run, I'm seeing more big bucks than most guys. How long did it take you to take your philosophy of this style of hunting? I mean, how long, how many, how many years have you been hunting? When did you start hunting? And how long did it take you to get to the point where you're like, this is how I'm hunting? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I've been hunting my whole life. Um, I think it was uh, sometime in the mid-80s, um, I had a buck that I really wanted to get. It was in a time frame when there wasn't very many big bucks, and it was a nice buck. And 
um, he was outsmarting me. And uh, I really made an effort to figure him out in the winter time, and found all his bedding areas and started hunting that way. And uh, you know, you know, the next year I killed him uh, with a shotgun um, by walking into each one of his bedding areas real slow, sneaking in until I ran into the right one, jumped him, and shot him. And from then on, that you know, back in the '80s, I've just been perfecting this. And I wouldn't say I'm done yet. I'll probably won't be done when I die. Um, yeah. It's just a continual progression. You just keep getting better. You keep learning things. And I like to think I learn something every time I go in the woods. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's definitely something that we want our listeners to uh, to take into consideration is that you don't become you don't just become the perfect hunting machine. It's an evolution and it's never ending. Correct. Yeah. So true. So so something you mentioned uh Got me thinking about another question. You talked about how the fact that you were walking into this buck's various bedding areas, pushing him a little bit until you found the right one he was in. How many different bedding areas do you think a buck has? You know, I think that varies greatly. I think different bucks have different personalities. And that particular buck uh, lived in an area that was about a square mile and probably had about, you know, 20 different spots that he bedded. Um, But in that same particular area, I shot a, a real big buck a couple of years later that I was having a real hard time with because he went way outside of that one mile area. He covered all those bedding areas and more. And that's another thing your, your viewers or your listeners might be uh, interested in is a lot of guys think they found a buck bed that they think they're hunting that buck. Those buck beds get used by all different kinds of bucks. That bed is there because of a specific terrain reason and a specific reason that with scent or or something, they, they pick the exact spot. There's nothing random about a buck bed. And uh, if you get a bed and you kill a good buck out of it, there's a good chance you'll kill another one out of that the next year or even later that same year. Um, the buck I killed uh, the first weekend of uh, this season, I've killed about six or seven big bucks out of that bed in there, and that's on public land. Um, and they get up out of that same bed, the same spot, I actually got to the point where I'm watching that bed waiting for him to rise. <laughs> wow. So do you think that even, let's say that, let's say there's a big buck and we think he's betting here. Will a new buck start betting in there, even if that original buck is still around and using it? Or will it not be until that buck is dead or gone that a new buck will start using it? Uh, absolutely. Uh, different bucks use those beds all the time. And, and there's actually what I call satellite betting. And, um, if you have a really good um, bedding area that's uh, one of the main ones, um, more than one buck will want to bed there. And whoever the kingpin is gets to pick the good spot. And if he gets there and there's a smaller buck there, that smaller buck will have to move. And if smaller bucks get there afterwards, they got to, you know, back out. And what happens is they bed around in a radius, you know, around this bed and, and like, spots that aren't quite as good and that gives guys problems too sneaking in there you're kicking up uh, other bedded deer that'll kick up your buck that you're after and how big of an area are these bedding areas where there's the the kingpin and then maybe a couple satellite bucks is this like a two acre area or are we talking like a big chunk of thick stuff or i mean how large They're usually, or small of an area? usually about an acre or so sometimes smaller sometimes bigger but a lot of the best ones i can think of off the top of my head are about an acre in size Okay. 
do you ever get a situation where several mature bucks will be betting in an area like that? I've always assumed that when it comes to mature bucks, you're talking they're not going to want to be bedded too closely during you know the later portions of the hunting season. Of course, during the summer, early season, there'll be bachelor groups. But once you're into October, I always assume that if there's a mature buck bedding in here, there probably won't be another big buck bedded for a decently a decent distance. Is that what you've seen or, or no? That is uh, pretty accurate. I mean, there's there's always the occasional exception, but for the most part, from mid-October through November, you don't see uh, mature bucks bedded together. Occasionally, for some reason, I'll see young bucks that bed near the big bucks, but it must be that they've accepted their dominance level or something. But the big bucks, you're right. I do see them early season and late season bedded together, but um, but round rut, usually not. They're usually separated. Okay. So, slightly... Silly on topic, slightly off. Uh, in-season scouting uh, is this? I think this is something you do a lot. Can you tell us a little bit about you know what kind of in-season scouting you're doing and, and what you're looking for? Okay. Um, uh, I like to follow transition lines, and I like to do it with my stand on my back. And the reason I do that is because when you find that hot sign, you need to sit it when you find it. Um, and uh, the reason I follow the transition lines is because it's usually along the bedding. Bedding's on the thick side of the transition. So I'm looking for good sign coming out of the thick areas that I think are, are bedding. Um, and then I set up on it and, and, and wait for the buck to come out. And if he doesn't come out, the next day I start where I left off, go until I find sign again. So you're... Um, Another way I, I scout in season um, is I have a destination in mind. And this happens a lot, and I've actually killed a lot of bucks doing this. I'm going to, to, you know, hunt this spot, this stand. You know, I haven't been there yet. I'm thinking that's where I want to go. So I'm heading there, but I'm scouting my whole way in. I got that stand on my back anyways. So I'm like, oh, I got to check the edge of this. I got to check the edge of that. And in a lot of cases, I don't make it to where I'm going. And I end up someplace else because there's good sign coming out of uh, either a known bedding area or some area that I think might be bedding. So I think we talked a little bit about this last time we had you on the podcast, but for people that maybe missed that one, what is that sign that you're looking for that would make you say, oop, I got to hunt here right now? The main thing for me is tracks. I mean, if I see big tracks, um, you know, you can drop four fingers in it. That's great. And if this track's going in both directions, I really get excited on one trail. Um, but you, in a lot of cases, you can't see the tracks. So you're, you're Hopefully you can find a, a fresh rub or some scrapes or something, but, uh, rubs, uh, you know, that's kind of a funny subject because, uh, a lot of guys look at the diameter of the tree and that's got some weight to it. But what really matters to me is the height. Mature bucks rub much higher off the ground than younger bucks. And when those rubs get, uh, waist higher, higher, that's really gets me going. Okay. I, I think I've definitely seen the same thing and I've always, you, like you said, people always assume it's the size of the tree, but I keep hearing more and more people, you know, give that advice of looking at the size of it and maybe to a degree, the severity of how it's rubbed up too. If there's one that's just torn to pieces, at least I haven't seen that be done by a, by a smaller buck, but it's interesting to look at those things. Are you paying any attention to the direction of where that rub is facing, or do you think that's kind of irrelevant to how you're going to hunt that kind of sign? Uh, you know, if it's along the transition, I'm, I'm assuming that the buck's coming out of the transition in daylight, whether the rub's going in or out. Okay. You, you know, um, another thing, too, is, is I think a lot of people at this time of the year, 
that's a big confusion thing because right now those rubs are popping up all over the place. The leaves are dropping so you can see for further distances. So a lot of people are noticing rubs right now. And I see a lot of guys on the public land um, set up in the middle of a hardwood because there's a really good rub line or a bunch of rubs or one that's really huge. You'll see a stand right over the top of it. Um, you got to remember a, a buck, a mature buck, especially on public land, um, 85 or 90% of his movement is at night. So it's most likely that grub was put there in the middle of the night. So you still got to relate that sign back to, you know, bedding or, or someplace close to where he beds because that's where he lives in daylight. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think um, this is something that we talked about that's uh, not just relevant to this time of year, but also during the rut. And when, um, when we had chatted, Dan, for the recording for the Rules of the Rut podcast that we launched, um, we talked about the fact that a lot of people make this mistake during the rut is hunting that rut hunting sign or that rutting sign like rubs or scrapes when actually during the rut they're not necessarily making those things as much. They're they're focusing on does or travel or whatnot. Um, so it's interesting that repeatedly people paying too much attention to the sign that's being created during night that, that just keeps popping up as a mistake that I think a lot of us need to think about and, and try to make sure we're not making because it's, it's easy to do. You see that and you think, wow, I know there's a big deer here. I need to... I need to get in on this, but it's it's kind of an illusion. Right. So let's take this to the, the worst-case scenario, maybe. So let's say we're trying this tactic out. We're trying to push in close to a bed, and we bump that buck. We see it get up and run off when we're heading in there to try to get set up. What do you do, Dan? Do you still hunt it? Do you move in closer? Do you leave that area for a while? What should somebody I've, do if I've they bump? I've had that situation happen a few times. And uh, each time it's different. Um, if I bump into a buck and my wind's blowing right to him and he jumps up and he barrels out of there, it's over. I'm packing up. I'm going to a different spot. But in a lot of cases, I'm sneaking into a bedding area and they're bedded a little too far up. You know, they're, they're not exactly where I thought they'd be and they bust me. They don't know what I am to get up and they trot off. I'll go in there and set up anyways. And I've had them come back like a half an hour, hour later, sneaking back to their bed you know, thinking whatever it was, walk past. If they get your scent, I think it's done. But a visual or just some sound, I don't think they know what you are, you know, especially if you're in camouflage. I think they just know something was up and it spooked them a little, and they come back. They don't always come back, but I think it's worth a shot. And uh, Andre kills a lot of bucks, and, and I've had some action this way too by uh, purposely. Yeah, Andre purposely kicks them out of their beds takes a look at him, sees if he wants to shoot him, hangs a stand, and then comes back the next morning and shoots him when they come back. Um, so I think if they don't get your scent and they don't know you're a human, I think that it's not that big of a deal. I've uh, also kicked up satellite deer that run right through a bedding area. I go set up anyways, and uh, just before dark, a big buck will get up right where that deer ran through and come in. Interesting. So... You mentioned the infamous bump and dump um, that I've heard so many people talk about. Can you share with us, if someone actually wants to try doing something like that on purpose, like Andre does, can you share with mm -hmm. us any tips for how to actually make that work? Well, uh, in my opinion, um, it works best um, if you bump them in the evening so that they get up and they don't relocate in the new bed. So that they go off and they stay up. They wander around someplace get back into their routine, do their thing, and just out of habit, go back to the same bed. I think if you bump them in the middle of the day, 
they might have a tendency to relocate at a different bed, and maybe they go back to that one after the night's over. Um, it might be a good idea to, you know, bump them before a moon day. So the next day they're coming back a little later. Okay. And um, are, are you setting up, you're setting up for that next morning hunt, correct? So you bump them in the evening, yeah. but then you're expecting them to come back the next morning? Correct. And then are you just trying to be downwind of where you, th- well, I guess you have to think about how he's entering that bedding area. So you, we talked earlier about how you believe they're jayhooking. So you're trying to anticipate how they might jayhook to get downwind of their bed and then try to be right off of that. Is that right? Right. And that gets a little complex, but, uh, but yes. Um, and I'm, t- I'm trying to figure out where they're going to come into that bed and make, make sure I'm not going to get winded is, is basically um, the scenario. So I'm trying to determine, okay, the wind's going to be this way. He's going to come from downwind. How am I going to get in here and, and kill this thing without um, him busting me? Yeah, it's like you said, complex. <laughs> because there's that potential that he's going to go around you yet if you're too close to the bedding area. Correct. And if you're too far, he gets in, in, between, in between you yeah. and you get down and you spook him. Um, now, on the, uh, on the hills, they tend to um, come in at the, um, in the bottom third. And then when it gets straight downwind of that bed, they go straight up to the bed. Um, but you kind of got to figure out which way they're going to come from and then hook up. That seems to be the easiest one for me to figure out is the hill ones because they always seem to come from the bottom of the hill. It's definitely one of those high-risk, high-reward type hunts that um, is pretty intriguing to a lot of people. Right. I, I do far more, more uh, damage in the evenings personally. Um, it's just easier to figure out. You know, it's easier to to do um, without, you know, blowing it. You know, I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket and kick them out in the morning and or have the uh, the infamous uh, bump them and never, ever, ever see them again. <laughs> 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 yeah, you definitely don't want that one. So so I've got one final question for you, Dan, because we are coming up here on time. This is actually pretty long for us. Um, you mentioned Andre a couple times, and you know he's the founder of Lone Wolf Tree Stands, and like you said, he has killed a tremendous number of really big bucks. And there's a lot of people that are always really interested in, in how he does this, and I know that you're pretty close to him. Could you share with us what you think his, you know, what's Andre's real key to success? How is he killing all these big deer. You know, if if I had to give one thing that he's got that makes him deadly, it's going to sound a little goofy to you, but I totally believe this. I believe it's his confidence. He believes he's going to be successful. He goes in aggressively and does what he has to do to get the job done. And he is so confident in what he's doing that it that it works out. It comes through, you know? Yeah. I, I, I kind of think that applies to a whole lot of different strategies when it comes to if you're really confident in your setup or what you're doing that given day, I think you're just that much more inclined to pay attention to the details while you're out there hunting. You're that much more ten, or likely to, to do everything the right way that night because you think this can actually happen um, rather than those days where you think, eh, it's just a random set and you might get lazy with things. So I wonder if that has something another, to do with it. Another thing about him is, is uh, I've known him, you know, half of his life before anybody even knew who he was when he was, you know, working out of his garage and such. And he has never been one to pick up a hunting magazine, turn on a show, watch a video. I don't think he even 
relates to any of that. He figures everything out on his own, so he doesn't learn everybody else's mistakes. And some of the stuff that uh, that he did hunting early on when uh, when we were younger hunting together just blew my mind. Like he would walk into veterinarians and kick the bucks up so they'd be on their feet that night so they wouldn't be nocturnal. And then go hunt them someplace else and actually kill them. <laughs> so, I mean, he, he just, he learned all that stuff on his own without getting that, uh, the misconceptions that are, are out there in his head. Interesting. I, I know, um, I really enjoyed the segments where, where Andre had talked on your videos, sharing some of his tips and it's always one of those people I think people are just kind of fascinated with, with how he's been hunting and how he's had so much success. So that's really interesting to hear your perspective on that. So, so Dallas, do you have a final question for Dan here before we wrap things up? Yes, I do. I'm uh, actually online right now and I'm looking, I typed in uh, your name in Google and I'm looking at some of your pictures here and I want to know how much money have you spent on taxidermy? <laughs> Quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I put all those mounts in my house, I wouldn't have pictures for my daughter. Room for my daughter's pictures. <laughs> yeah. He's done pretty good, hasn't he? Oh, that's a lot. That's a lot of deer, and they're and you know they're all they're all really good bucks. You know, Dan, I'm curious. That being the case, we just asked you what you thought the real single one key to success for Andre Quista was. What would you say your single, if there was one thing that you do better than most or that you really hang your head on? And maybe it's related to what we've been talking about here today, but what do you think that one thing is that is your biggest key to success? I think it would be um, understanding how deer bed and, and how to manipulate them. Yeah, I've definitely definitely have learned from you so much on that topic and I, I can definitely see how that's helped you kill a lot of deer in the in the in the past and I'm sure it'll help you kill a lot of deer in the future so well, I'll tell you what you know there's there's all these products and gimmicks that are out there that they say help you know help people kill bigger bucks or whatnot I would buy Dan's Dan's mojo and if you just would like wring out your sweat into a bottle <laughs> I would buy that from you just so I could get a, a any any type of uh i don't know better advantage i mean because you know you got it together man that's what i can say <laughs> appreciate it well dan i think that's a perfect way to end this uh this out we we appreciate you joining us dan so much for the second time and um just thank you we're excited to chat with you in the future hopefully again we're excited to see how the rest of the season goes for you and uh and thank you for joining us yeah definitely good luck the rest of the season yeah, for sure. All right, Dan, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. With that said, if you'd like to hear more from Dan Infault, check out our recently released Rules of the Rut 2.0 ebooks and podcast package, as Dan contributed several articles to those books and is interviewed for the podcast series. You can find more details at wiredtohunt.com slash episode 27, along with the rest of the show notes and links from today's episode. Also, as always, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we would, of course, really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or review on iTunes. Big thanks to everyone who has already done that. And finally, we'd like to thank our partners who helped make this show possible. Big thanks to Sick of Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Huntsoft, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J Long Ridge Tractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. That all said... 
thanks for taking a little bit of time out of your day to be with us. It's an amazing time of year to be a white to honor, and I hope you've been able to take advantage of it. I wish you all the luck in the world on your next hunting trip. And as always, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.